will open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. There Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. And the same Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Athanasius was born in A.D. 298 in Alexandria, Egypt. And at the age of 30, he became the bishop of Alexandria. He was the chief defender of the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea and the first person to list the 27 books of the New Testament that we use to this day. His treatise on the incarnation of Christ laid the foundation for biblical truth at Nicaea, and he was hailed as the noble champion of Christ. All of these are great accomplishments in his life, but none of them can match his chief accomplishment. His chief accomplishment was living a life of Christ-likeness, not only in the presence of his uh, beloved church members, but all who loved truth throughout Egypt loved Athanasius. Those are the ones that he made the most impact for Christ on. However, those who were against the truth, specifically the truth concerning Jesus' deity and his eternal existence as God, those people hated him. They hated him, and they moved to exile Athanasius from Alexandria over and over again. And although he was exiled five times, the people within his congregation viewed him as their bishop until the day he died on May 2nd, 373, in the year of our Lord, at the age of 75. Seventeen of Athanasius's 45 years as bishop was spent in exile. Yet, the people he loved and influenced as salt and light never acknowledged the validity of the other bishops they uh, put in his place. To them, Athanasius was always bishop in exile. Gregory of Nazianzus, bishop of Constantinople, uh, had great praise for Athanasius. He said, when I praise Athanasius, Virtue itself is my theme. For I name every virtue as often as I mention him who was possessed of all virtues. He was the true pillar of the church. His life and conduct were the rule of bishops and his doctrine the rule of the orthodox faith. The great historian Cornelius Clifford says of Athanasius, he may be said rather to have shaped the events in which he took part than to have been shaped by them. End quote. When it came to being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, Athanasius personified it thoroughly. Our passage today 
tells us that all who call themselves Christians, followers of Christ, are to make an impact as salt and light upon everyone that God providentially brings into our lives. The people that you run into every day aren't by accident. The people in your own home aren't there just by chance. God has said, I have placed you in their lives so that I may be known. And we are to live as salt and light before everybody that God brings to us. Yet there's this unwillingness, this hesitancy, and even this fear to be what Jesus calls us, calls us to be. Whether it's a fear of being persecuted or a, a fear of being seen different, there are those who are so engaged with the world that they have abandoned their responsibility to be salt and light. As a matter of fact, they are very similar to the common barren caterpillar. The common barren caterpillar of Southeast, of Southeast Asia, right? Uh, what, 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 what this caterpillar can do is he can vanish into the surrounding vegetation uh, that he is in out of fear, out of fear that he will be devoured by the angry bird or the lizard. He just blends so that he cannot be seen. And many of us live our lives blending into the environment. We choose to hide our identity in Christ through the Beatitudes that we just went through. Jesus gives us a clear view of what a Christian looks like. And then after the Beatitudes, uh, which is uh, where we are today, right after the Beatitudes, the salt and light, Jesus narrows it down to two definitive metaphors. And, and this, this salt and light he's teaching us today is not to be separated from the Beatitudes, but on the contrary, the Beatitudes are what it is to be salt and light. And we are not hoping to be salt and light. He says you are salt. You are light. Just as salt isn't hoping to be salt. That's just what it is. It's just a matter of whether it is applied or not. And just like a flashlight isn't hoping to be a flashlight, it's just whether it shines or not. Right? And so I've broken our text into two directives and one Outcome. Two directives and one outcome. Directive number one, apply your salt, meaning apply yourself. You are salt. Directive number two, shine your light. Shine your light. The outcome, that God is glorified. That God is glorified. What, what other thing could we possibly take more joy in? That God would be glorified by our lives that people would be able to look to you and say, thank you. I was living in a world of sin, but because you showed the way. You didn't just speak it. You didn't just get up and go to church and then come home and, and, and act the same. I saw it by your life. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to do for Christ. So I'll ask you to pray with me and for me at this time. Lord God, I pray you will open the eyes of our hearts 
to see the splendor of your majesty, that we would run to you and desperately cling to the beauty of your holiness. We pray for the unsaved to be granted ears to hear so they may hear you calling them with an effectual call, an eternal call. I pray you would move me out of the way. Show them Christ. Show them the good shepherd who has never lost one sheep and never will. Amen. Directive number one, apply your salt. Apply your salt. In verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5, our Lord tells all Christians, you are the salt of the earth. Meaning those who follow Christ are to be operating in the world as a seasoning and a preservative. Today, for the most part, we use salt as a condiment, as a seasoning to enhance the flavor of of food and, and salt has a peculiar taste of its own. It's like uh, nothing else, uh, right? Just a small dash dramatically changes the flavor of everything that it, it is mixed with. However, in Jesus' day, the days before refrigeration and chemical preservatives, people used salt to prevent the decay of meat for the most part. So what Jesus is teaching is that the presence of morally strong disciples, those who, who, who live out the Beatitudes, can slow down moral decay in any society, in any society. Even in, in its infancy, Christianity worked to bring change in the hearts of many who walked the streets within the Roman Empire. In his book, what if Jesus had never been born? Dr. James Kennedy writes, life was expendable prior to Christianity's influence. In those days, abortion was rampant. Abandonment was commonplace. It was a common thing for infirm babies or unwanted little ones to be taken out into the forest or the mountainside to be consumed by wild animals or to starve. They often abandoned female babies because women were considered inferior. So how did Christianity bring change to that culture? Well, after men and women were converted to Christ, as the scripture tells us, they came under the apostles preaching and teaching. And, and they would hear the, the, these words being read that they never heard before. And they would hear things like, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That comes from Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. And this was mind-blowing for the men and the women who were raised thinking women were inferior. In so many of their minds, women weren't even able to learn. That's the result of thinking that they're inferior and just a little bit uh, 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 better than property. Some thought they just were property, but for the most part, they could not learn like men. Then they would hear the words of the Apostle Paul being read. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Do what? That's right. Stop holding the truth from them. Any woman who's willing to submit themselves to the hearing of God's word, let them learn. They are made in the image of God. They are more than capable of learning. We cannot calculate the impact that had on society. In every society for the last 2,000 years, it has raised the level of what people thought about women. But we read this 
today in our culture, totally missing the context in which it was written and react in anger, claiming that it does the opposite of what it actually did. Also, Dr. Kennedy writes, such changes were not limited to the West. The influence of biblical principles abolished sute in India. That's when a, 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 a husband would die and they would burn him in the fire and they would look at the wife and say, well, she's useless. Throw her in there also. And they would burn the wives also. It stopped the killing of wives, but it also stopped any women who were left without a man. It stopped cannibalism as they saw these people are made in the image of God. Why are we eating them? It, it, it stopped uh, everything that was anti-God for the most part. Of course you have the unbelievers, but when I'm saying it stopped, for the most part the people that God said, you, you, and you worship me, the lights came on. The lights came on and they said, we cannot do this anymore. And cultures were changed. Cultures were changed. Just like the preserving effect that salt has on meat. The presence of morally strong disciples can preserve those around them from corruption. And this is seen on so many levels. So many levels. Think about it as it pertains to your household and your children. Praise God for all the babies, babies that God has blessed this church with over the last couple of years. Um, God is good, but I pray God would have mercy on you young parents. As, as I said, and I quoted somebody once before, they're vipers and diapers. So praise God. I, I, I pray that you would use uh, the older people in the church to guide you and to help you and to pray for you, to even, uh, well, I was going to say babysit, but no, that's okay. But, but, but God is good, right? right, right? So, so, so the thing is, God commands his people to be salt and light in the earth and in the world. But if it doesn't start in our home, something's missing. There's a disconnect, right? Uh, we look at our kids and we say, how can I preserve them from decay? Right? How can I preserve them from decay if I don't train them in the way that they should go? Telling your child to sit down and be quiet is not a sin. It's not a sin to discipline your children. However, failing to discipline them is a sin. If they refuse to listen to you, if they continue in rebellion and you don't check them, now you're the one who is in sin. Christ demands that we train them to honor their mother and father. As long as you uh, stand up for truth and righteousness in your home, you are teaching your children Christ's likeness at an early age. You can help stop corruption beginning in your own home. Continuing in verse 13, Jesus also said, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt is useful so long as it preserves and flavors. Literally, salt, which is sodium chloride, is a stable compound, meaning it cannot lose its saltiness. 
But what Jesus may have been referring to was the saltiness that uh, derived from the salt marshes of the region, which contained many impurities. Once the impurities leaked out, it would leave, leave a trace of salt so small that it was hardly uh, noticeable. And the substance that uh, was left resembled pure salt, but it wasn't effective for seasoning or preserving anything. So Jesus' major point was that losing your saltiness, your Christian character on display, has major implications. For instance, going back to the dis- disciplining of your children. Let's say you begin to get lax concerning the disciplining of your child that God has blessed you with, that God has given you. And you say, you know what, those child psychologists do make sense. Because if I continue to discipline my child and I speak uh, uh, harsh words to him, I may corrupt him. I may give him this uh, low uh, sense of self-esteem. So I'm going to listen to the child uh, psychologist uh, because they did say something that made sense to me. Hurt people hurt people. And I'm going to let them be who they are. Lord help. I pray none of you take that position. You must always remember the words from Christ But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? If you fail being salt in your own home, meaning you're no longer even attempting to preserve righteousness God's way, your children and your household are going to suffer. How does that play out? Society is going to suffer because someone is going to correct your child along the way. Someone is going to say, hey, you're not getting away with that today. So God says, I need you. I need you to show love to your child. I need you to step in and save them. I need you to listen to me. Through Solomon, God says, whoever spares the rod hates his son. Daughters are included. But he who loves him or her is diligent to discipline him or her. That's Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24. If you're not preserving your child from corruption through godly discipline, how can you say you love them? If it were not for the number of courageous and faithful Christian parents who raise their children biblically, including godly discipline, can you imagine how much worse this world would be? Thank God for calling believers to be preservers of righteousness according to his word. We live in a world where moral standards are low and are constantly changing for the worse. So the Lord has called us to effect change to to the ones he sends our way. And ultimately, as the salt of the earth, we are to sow the seed of the gospel So people may learn that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. Jesus Christ has come to deliver people from darkness, to shine the light on darkness. But unfortunately, many church folk, I did not say Christian, I said church folk have decided, I don't want to be a preservative. They would rather follow the ways of the culture and watch their children their loved ones, their friends, decay from immorality. They have lost their saltiness and are no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus' words, not mine. And I confess, it is not easy being the salt of the earth. It's not easy. But if Jesus says we are salt, he equips us to be salt. 
That's displaying holiness, the holiness of Christ through your life, through your words, through the decisions that you make. Not only that, but he also says that we are light. And then he commissions us to reveal Christ as the ultimate light in a dark world. And that brings us to my second directive, shine your light. Shine your light. Charles Spurgeon once said, As light shines from the center of the lantern through the glass, when therefore the truth is kindled within, it, its brightness soon beams forth in the outward life and conversation. Light is a strong symbol in the, in the Old Testament as well as the New. And it most frequently symbolizes purity as opposed to filth. Truth as opposed to error, knowledge as opposed to ignorance. As we just looked at Saul and saw how it acts as an agent to slow down decay, light comes in to illuminate, illuminate upon the darkness. We, being referred to as salt, serves as a warning to us from the negative. Not to conform to the ways of the world, so the world may see the life of Christ through us and be preserved from decay. But we being referred to as light speaks from the positive as an exhortation to us to let the Christ in us shine so others may escape the darkness, turn, and glorify God. We must never shrink back from our duties uh, as, as, as being light bearers for Christ. As Bonhoeffer said, flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. Flight into the invisible is a denial of of the call. And he also said, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. You cannot follow Christ down the road and hide at the bushes at the same time. You have to come from the bushes, you have to come from identifying with the world, get out on the road and follow Christ. You are the light of the world, Jesus said in verse 14 of our text. The purpose of light is to be utterly distinct from darkness. You can't be light and darkness at the same time. You can't have one foot in the world and call yourself light. The world is dark. The culture leads you in a place that Christ does not dwell. You cannot say, well, I am the light, but covered in darkness. It does not work. It does not work. The purpose of light can be seen in Genesis chapter 1. It was the first thing in verse 3 of Genesis 1 that God called into being. Without it, there would be no life. And from an eternal perspective, Jesus' mandate that his people be a light to the nations has always been God's way of gathering people to himself. We see this in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3, where Isaiah writes, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Did you see that? What we see here is God's design for Israel to be a light to the Gentiles was so that they would end up coming to the light of God, to his glory, to his brightness. In our text, in Matthew, Jesus uses this imagery to direct his followers the same way, the same way. 
the Jews saw themselves as a light to the world. According to uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 19 and 21, anyway. There Paul says to them, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? The problem was, even though they thought they were a light to the nations, they missed the chance to be great missionaries of God greatly through sin, through stubbornness, through following pagans. Let that not be your testimony, that you call yourself a follower of God, yet you're following pagans. You're following ways that are anti-God. And you may not see it like that, but if you pick up the word of God and it says go right, and the world is saying go left, it's simple math. It's just a matter of being honest with yourself. I thank God for Jesus. Because in John chapter 8 and verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Because Jesus is the light of the world, all born-again believers are made many lights of the world. As Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8 declares, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And I want you to notice chapter 5, uh, verse 8 of Ephesians says, you were darkness. It doesn't say you were in darkness, although that's true. That's not all we were. We were darkness. Being in darkness describes uh, the location of our hearts and minds, our passions, what we lived for. But being darkness is exactly that. It's our entire being. It's who we are. We were darkness. It's not only dwelling in the realm of darkness, presided over by the prince of darkness, who rules over all who are headed for outer darkness. By nature, from birth, we were darkness. We sinned because we were sinners. It is from that very darkness that salvation in Christ delivered us, granting us life, granting us light. That's why John uh, chapter 3, verses 3 to 5 tells us we must be born again if we're ever going to enter or even see the kingdom of heaven. When you are born again, right, it doesn't matter uh, how, you, how you lived before, what was the cause, right? Uh, we know it was by nature you were children of wrath. The world likes to say, well, it's by nurture, Take your pick. You must be born again. However you're walking in this life, you need new life. That's the main thing. So many are caught up in our old life, and that is all that dominates our memory and our speech, that we cannot even lose, move forward in Christ. We're paralyzed. We're sitting here telling everybody what we used to do. We're laying in our beds at night thinking of how we used to be. But God has delivered you, and if God has said he has delivered you, he has delivered you from that. To get the picture, I want you to think of a muddy glass of water. A muddy glass of water. And this glass has been sitting on a shelf for 40 years, muddy. At the point of salvation, what God does is he comes. You can't empty yourself. 
He comes, he dumps the glass, and he puts in the purest, freshest, clearest water anybody has ever seen. So that when they see that, they know there's a difference. You can't have muddy and clear water in the same glass. A little bit of mud will taint the whole glass. He didn't say, I came and saved you a little bit. He says, I poured my spirit into you. I gave you a new disposition. I call you my own. You belong to me. I have regenerated you. I have given you new life in Christ. It's all because of his blood, his kindness, his goodness towards us. This can be seen greatly in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. If you want to explain salvation to someone, right, and, and, and you, want them, you want them to look at it, you say, well, let's look at Colossians chapter 1. And then you slow down when you get to verses 13 and 14. It's so helpful in understanding salvation. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That changed our location. Like, think of the conveyor belt. You put something on it and it takes you from here to there. It takes that thing from this point A to point B. That changed our location. He delivered us from there. Then it goes on to say, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That changes our status. That changes who we are from our core. We are no longer children of wrath, no longer children of darkness, but children of God who walk in the light of Christ. That's what he has done. You you will stumble. Don't think I'm saying you will be perfect. You will fall because of this flesh, this old way of thinking. It's like coming out of the rain and you come into the house. You're not dried automatically. It takes time. The problem with some of us is we go back into the rain for a little while because we thought it was fun. And then we come back into the house. And then we go back into the rain. And then we come back into the house. And we wonder why we are still wet with sin says, come out. I delivered you. I've taken you from that, from that, from that, 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 that fold where all the sheep were spotted. And I brought you over here and I've cleansed you. Stop going back over there. Stop it. You will be depressed or you will suffer from anxiety. You'll need pills to go to sleep. You'll need pills to wake up. And you'll say, but I gave my life to Christ. Did you really? You made a profession. Ask people. Ask people you know who say you know, they're Christian. And, and ask them, why are you a Christian? And unfortunately, you will hear answers like, well, I was raised in a Christian home. I was always Christian. Or I was baptized at seven, and so I'm a Christian. And you slide them over here to Colossians chapter 1. Read the whole thing, then go back to verses 13 and 14. And say, this is a Christian. Someone who has been delivered from the do- domain of darkness, someone who has redemption and the forgiveness of sins, not because they were baptized, but because God was good and he brought his son to me. He brought his son to me and I saw that he was beautiful and I received him and he opened my eyes to see that he was beautiful and he changed my mouth. He changed my, my, the words that come out of here. He changed the hate in my heart that I had for fill in the blank that did me wrong when I was young. He showed me I must forgive because I have been forgiven. When someone repents and they come and they say, I was wrong. How can I make it right? That's true repentance. We don't say, I can't forgive you. 
I can't. Not anybody who has been delivered from a death and hell and torment. Nobody who has been delivered. People who know their life and know what God has done cannot hold unforgiveness in their heart. Back to our text. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 14, what Jesus does is he compares our being light in a dark world to being like a city on a hill. Like a city on a hill. And I want you to think of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. No street lights uh, to, lamp, to light up the night. However, in the homes, there would often be candles sitting in the windows or on lampstands. And on a pitch black road traveling towards an elevated city like Jerusalem, you could see the candle lamps through the windows miles away. The church is to be that city on a hill shining its light for the lost. We are to be that light for those looking to escape this empty, miserable, and dark world. On an individual basis, being light means we are to be like thermostats, not thermometers. Thermostats, not thermometers. Uh, what thermometers do is they take the temperature of the room. They can't change the temperature. You, you look at the thermostat and what it is, that's what it is. However, the thermostat changes the temperature of the room, its environment. That's what we are, salt and light. We don't talk like the people in the room. And those who, are, who, who, who will notice you time after time will say, oh, man, he don't curse. Just, just, just stop that. I've had that happen. Those who like to read uh, and, and take out the, the, the I was going to say Playboy magazine, but your phone, and say, hey, look at this. Look at this. And when you come into, into the room, and I've had this happen, uh, no, no, he doesn't look at that. Let's, let's put that away. Thermostat, not thermometer. You don't just take the temperature of the room and fit right in. And it is so easy. I've fallen into this. Slander. Man, that boss is terrible. He, he's horrible. Yeah, he is, ain't he? And so it's so easy to slander, to, to just slip right in and have your mouth gossip and, and, and speak about people. And, and it's just that old nature coming up. But the more you practice, the better you get at everything. The more you say, okay, I can't do that. You go home and, 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 and even on the way home, you're saying, how did I get caught up in that? How did I allow my tongue? Lord, help me. And so you pray and you think about it and you prepare and you allow God to work through you so that whenever that happens again, here's how I'm going to change the temperature in the room. That's what's needed. Not to just keep falling for the same thing, but to pray and ask God for wisdom. How can I be different the next time that scenario comes? That's how we are sanctified in Christ. It's not through osmosis. It's not like, wow, why am I falling into the same sin? You stop and you say, Lord, I pray for wisdom. Help me. What could I do the very next time this thing is about to come? The sin that is, is, is so egregious against you. We attempt to change every environment that God providentially puts us in by his mercy. Yes, you will seem like the weird one, but that's just the beginning of what it means to be the light of the world. You may be penalized for sharing the good news that Jesus saves, but that's the call. 
Did you know that in some states, right, we, we have this idea that the world is wicked, but if I go over here, it's good. Here's the thing, right? In some states, if you want to hold a Bible study in your, ha- in your, in your home, you have to have a permit. Did you know that? Some people did, some people don't. Um, in some areas, you can't have a Bible study in your home at all. In some areas, in some states, in some cities. A few years ago, in Southern California, Chuck and Stephanie Fromm were fined $300 for holding a home Bible study on their property, right? Um, Southern California. They were told that they did not have the proper conditional use permit to hold such a meeting. No permit, no Bible study. And I hear some of you thinking right now, well, that's California. What do you expect? That's why I'm moving to Florida. Okay. In Venice, Florida. Authorities cracked down on Shane and Marlon Rossiger for holding a Bible study in their home on Friday nights. The meetings consist of at most 10 people gathering for a time of prayer and Bible study. But authorities in Venice insist that this is a zoning violation. And Shane and Marlon are being threatened with a fine of $250 per meeting. Even though the first directive in the First Amendment of the Constitution says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Which means if you want to hold a drunken porn party all night long, have at it. Knock yourselves out. Unless someone at this drunken pool party or porn party party, pulls out a Bible and begins teaching that Jesus saves, now you're in trouble. Now you have a problem. But this is what it is to be the light of the world, to stand up and say no. You will have to say no to temptation. You may have to say no to some friends. You will have to break from the crowd. You will have to be willing to stand alone for Christ. It may cost you a promotion. It might cost you your career. One day, it may cost you your freedom or your life. The question is, how do we stand up for Christ in the face of evil? Well, I have four ways for you. Pastor Mike has four ways for you. If you have um, a photo graphic or um, a great memory from things that you hear. You don't have to write it down. Everybody else, here are four ways. And all four begin with the Holy Spirit working in you. You have to have the Spirit of God to do this. Number one, through that Holy Spirit, reminding us of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. There it says that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. That means we owe our lives to God, whatever the cost. Whatever the cost, we owe our lives to God. Number two, the same spirit of God We need him to bring to remembrance the primary purpose of being salt and light is that God would be exalted and glorified in a wicked and perverse generation. That God would be exalted and glorified in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Because 
if we kept reading that same uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 19 passage, in verse 20, it says that we are to glorify God in our body. So we are not our own. We were bought at a price. Glorify God. We are not our own. Glorify God. We were bought at a price. Glorify God. Glorify God. That's the purpose of your existence. The third way we may stand up for Christ in the face of evil, once again, by the Holy Spirit engraving within us the mindset that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. This is an incredible portion of scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is incredible. But you get to verses 19 and 20, and it says something that I still can't figure out to this day. Through us, God is actually making his appeal for his enemies to be reconciled. Through lazy, unwilling, unforgiving, simple people, God wants to reach his enemies and turn them. And the scripture says that, 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 that uh, in Christ, here's what God was doing. He was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Why would he do that? I know myself. And he says, I'm entrusting to you the message of reconciliation. He does that because he is God and he gives me the ability to. Of myself, I'm like, no. No, I don't, I don't want to do that. I know them. I know what they've done. God says, I know what you've done. And you know I know what you've done. Bring them the message of reconciliation. What do I say, no? I say, but help me. Give me the words to say. Help me. Give me the courage. The fourth way we may stand up for Christ in the face of evil, once again, is by the Spirit reminding us of the words of Jesus from Matthew 5, uh, uh, 12 through uh, uh, 15, basically saying, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven quoting it over and over to ourselves throughout the day, especially when we're right smack dab in the middle of an evil assault from the world, the flesh, and the devil. That changes our language from what did I do to deserve this to I am so blessed right now because the kingdom of heaven is mine changes the whole dynamic of why you live, why you get out of the bed. You can choose to have a pity party. You can choose to be shocked when this world calls you intolerant. You can choose to be downcast when someone you love says, don't call me no more. You're too Jesus-y for me. I can't handle it. You are too higher uh, than God. I, I can't talk to you. You can choose to, to, to wallow in the mire. Or you can choose to say, I am so blessed because God said I am. Because the kingdom of heaven is mine. He has done it. He has made me a participant in this thing called salvation. What is better than that? What is better than that? 
In verse 16, Jesus goes on to say, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. And surely if words mean anything, we are meant to learn from this light metaphor that we are to be something different, distinct. There should be something special about our character because if we're living in darkness like the world, what impact do we make? What, what, darkness and darkness, there's no distinction. But in the midst of darkness, shine your light. Boom. There's light here. Wow. I see my sin. Wow. Thank you. One of the problems is we're so impatient. We expect people to change like this. When we didn't change like this, we didn't, we didn't go from the backhand to the front hand overnight. But when somebody else is living in sin and we share the gospel and they don't say, okay, great. We, all of a sudden we're hurt. All of a sudden we're, we feel like we're wasting our time. God has placed in us the seed of the Holy Spirit to be consistent, show, to show light consistently, to be the salt of the earth consistently. Why? The outcome God gets the glory. God gets the glory. In my last mass message, I gave some examples and historical records of, being, of what being persecuted for righteousness looks like. But I did not give any examples of what being persecuted for righteousness does not look like. For instance, if I were to get written up on my job because my start time is 9 o'clock, yet every day at 9.20, I'm still in the break room arguing and calling all my co-workers evil, hell-bound sinners. What I call witnessing looks to my bosses like psychosis. God's not getting any glory from that. He's not getting any glory from that. And that's not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. If I'm being paid to work, I need to work diligently so that God may get the glory from that, from my hard work. Or, or even when I've lost my job because I believed my rights were being violated and now my family and I are suffering. Maybe it was something I believed I had to do, but my suffering is not for Christ's sake. It's for mine. There are so many examples of what it is to, to, to be uh, suffering, what it is to be suffering in this life but they have absolutely nothing to do with displaying a Christ-like meekness, mourning over sin within and without, or hungering and thirsting for righteousness or for the glory of God. The Apostle Peter clears this up for us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 16, when he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer... For righteousness' sake, for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's always for righteousness sake that you are blessed if you're persecuted. And it's always because you are in Christ. It's for those who are in Christ. It's for the church of Christ. It's for his glory, not ours. We have to be so 
careful when we take a stand and we're persecuted. Why? Does God get the glory in the end? If you get your way, is God glorified? Do the nations turn if your favorite president is elected? If your political party is ruling the country, do hearts turn for Christ? Or does everybody get their way for 70, maybe 80 years by strength and die and go to hell? What are you fighting for? What are you losing sleep over? When your good behavior, based on your being in Christ, causes you to be reviled and slandered, then with a good conscience, you can know you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's what we need. People who want to glorify God. That's why we should gather. To gather so we can learn how to better glorify God. To not shrink into a shell or a pity party because you find yourself being attacked or alone because you no longer run in the same flood of sin wasting your life and have now begun living a new life no longer living for yourself but for him who for your sake died and was raised that comes out of 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 15 dying to yourself and living for the one who died for you that's what it is to be a Christian According to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, we are to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against us as evildoers, they may see our good deeds and do what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. To glorify God when they see the word of God being preached. When God opens their eyes to the truth, it causes one to glorify him. The Lord God is so beautiful. That when your eyes are open to him, you can't help but praise him. You can't help but worship him. It causes you to want to stop the sin. It causes you to want to lift up your hands and your voices and worship him. If you're one of those who are hearing this today, but have not yet received salvation, I pray that you would cry out to God. That he would, he, would, he would save you, that he would hear your cry because it is a, an earnest cry. Not a cry because you're having a hard time in this life. Not a cry because you've lost your job or you're sick and the doctor's giving you a bad prognosis. But because you love him. That's the cry he hears. That's the one that he says, okay, come. Come. Because he began the good work in you. He's the one who opened your eyes and unplugged your ears and took the scales off of your heart. I pray that he would give you that new resurrected life, making you light, making you salt. Christians get such a bad rap, but as salt and light, you get a chance to change the narrative. Whether you're just coming to Christ or you've been in Christ for 50 years, today change any bad narratives that may be attached to your name. Let us pray. Father, as we leave this place and we go back out into the world, I pray we would have an increased desire to be salt and light, that you may receive the glory, Lord God, that you may be lifted up before men, that those we love the most would turn to you and praise you, and that we all would spend an eternity before you, 
lifting up our voices, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I pray you would do that work, Lord God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.